0: Hello and welcome to Your Booked. This week we have a conversation with the king of crime, Peter James. But firstly, I'd love to tell you about my writing club, the Creative Confidence Clinic. If you'd love to make something, but you tend to get in your own head and in your own way, this is the place for you some members are trying to write their first book some are on their 10th and I'm there for you every step of the way with practical advice and plenty of emotional support you can find us at creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com and my writing course write like a reader is back it starts at the end of this month I teach over Zoom. It's a very intimate and friendly group. There'll be just 20 of us. I'll teach five sessions covering everything I know about character, plot, pacing, beginnings and endings. And if you can't make a session, you can watch it as a video catch up. If you'd like to find out more, email creativeconfidenceclinic at gmail.com and I'll send the syllabus over. And if you mention that you're a Your Book listener, you get a course discount. If you're free and fancy a trip to Kent, The Margate Bookie is coming on the 21st and 22nd of October. Come and meet former podcast guests, including Lou Sanders, Yomi Adagoki, Lucy Vine, Andy Osho, and more. Go to margatebookie.com for tickets and info. I'll be very happy to sign and dedicate any of my books. And if you're a digital reader, my latest novel, Limelight, is a Kindle mega deal this October. It's currently just 99p. It's also topping the charts in humorous erotic fiction. A fact I find both funny and sexy. Now to Peter James. He's an international bestseller, best known for his compelling character, Detective Superintendent Roy Grace. I had the pleasure of hanging out with Peter at the Queen's Reading Room Festival, and watching him speaking about his research was so fascinating that I wanted more. We talked about his latest novel, Stop Them Dead. It's all about the dog smuggling trade, but I promise it's gripping, addictive, and completely safe for dog lovers to read. We also talked about Peter's many pets, writing routines and being inspired by crime. I hope you enjoy. You must get a lot of letters, I suppose now not just post letters, but there are so many ways that people can get in touch.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I would say that if you get a letter, it's almost certainly going to be from somebody probably upwards of 80. Yeah, I mean, I get, I mean, two to four hundred a day, I guess. But we were reply and we'll, and we'll say that, you know, that if it's something particularly smart or needs a reply from me, I'll reply myself, otherwise my kind of team will reply. But we make sure everybody gets a reply. And, and anything that's interesting, I, I always get to read. And I love it. I, I've, I've learned a lot from uh, comments from readers. You know, Somebody writes to me and says, James, James, thought you did your research, but you've got this procedure and operating theatre wrong. We'll go back to that person and say, great, next time I write an operating scene, would, would you take a look at that chapter? Uh, so I've built up a huge research pile from just people <coughs> writing and pointing out mistakes, which is great. And that couldn't, couldn't have happened 30 years ago because, you know, somebody would write to your agent and, uh, and uh, they'd probably write to the publisher. It would, go, yeah, it would take you <coughs> a month before the letter even reached you. I used to publish awful fan mail. I, I love it. You know, I think my favorite was James James. I read on your cover that you, you were compared to Michael Crichton and Stephen King. Let me tell you, you're not as good as either and you never will be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Gosh, that's that's brutal. That's
1: yeah, I've had a few Quite ones, frank. wonderful ones over the years. I think I did, Bob Stein told the wonderful R.L. Stein, he had a wonderful one. Which is, Dear R.L. Stein, I've read 37 of your books. I find you boring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fabulous. And you know, no, you don't. Clearly. <laughs> Oh, you've got a lot of time on your hands. Can we please talk about R.L. Stein? Because he—that he's not an author. I expected to be the first author that you mentioned, but huge, huge part of my my young reading and I think listeners and um, they're sort of their first introduction to books. Did you meet the man?
1: Yeah, many times. I I, um, was on the board at Thrillerfest in New York for a number of years, and Bob was also on the board. And every July during Thrillerfest, he hosted a wonderful supper party at his got this amazing, it's like a house in the sky, it's like an, an apartment, but it's just a stunning, uh, just off the um, <clears throat> West River, um, and he's a real character, he's just, he's just, he can't open his mouth without being funny, in, in a wonderfully kind of droll way, and, and we, had an, we had an evening one time where we were just comparing fan emails, and <clears throat> another one he told me was, um, Dear R.L. Stein, I, I, I read your books and I, I do like them. Can you tell me something? Do you have hair?
0: <laughs> Did the letter writer include their age and their signature?
1: It's lovely when you meet somebody who is a complete legend. And sure, when I was a kid, I kind of read him too. And he's actually even nicer than, than the person you imagined he might possibly be.
0: To write it for that audience, I think you do need to have that humour and that quickness. And I think those books are so beloved because they're funny and they're unexpected as much as they are sort of, you know, dark and strange, because that's how you think when you're a child. And I guess as well, you'd hope, I mean, it sounds like not always, but when you're writing for adults, there's an element of respect and, you know, I hope trying to say something appropriate when you're in contact with your your writing idol, but, you know, kids have no such filters.
1: And also, I think adults forget kids are incredibly gruesome and interested in, you know, and I think two authors that really kind of got that is, is Bob Stein and also Roald Dahl. And, you know, when I've given talks in schools, uh, you know, they sit there, you know, kids, you know, 10, 8, 10, 12, they sit there, you know, looking bored out of their trees until, until I get on to post and then, wow, they, their eyes light up. You know, one will run out and throw up. In the, in, but 99 of them were, like, and riveted. I always remember about death and, and, and how, you know, in Victorian days, if, if somebody, a member of the family died, they'd be laid out in, in their coffin and probably put on the dining table. And the kids would walk around and they'd play in that room and they'd sort of look up at Grandpa, whoever it was. And they kind of get used to it as part of the process of life. And and today, the moment somebody dies, and I remember it with my own dad back in 1986, you know, by the time I got to my mum's house, his body had already been taken away. And it's like we want to sweep death under the carpet. And and I think it's disorienting for kids.
0: So as a young reader, because we're talking about R.L. Stein and Roald Dahl, who were you reading? What were the stories that really spoke to you?
1: I guess, good old Enid Blyton and, and the Famous Five. I, I remember I wrote to Enid Blyton when I was about eight and I said, uh, Dear Miss Blyton, I've just read Five Go to Treasure Island and they spent seven days on this island and not one of them went to the toilet and all that time. <laughs> I'm really worried. <laughs> and she wrote back and she said, Well, dear Peter, they did go. I just didn't think little boys and girls were interested. So I left those bits out. And, and I spent... Much of it, the, the next few years of my childhood, reading everything that she subsequently wrote. And I hope that one day, somewhere in one of them, somebody will be taking a dump. That <laughs> she'd take your editorial notes and
0: include them.
1: Yep. But do you know what it taught me? And I, I still, to this day, do that, which is, it taught me. I and mean, it was just amazing that I got a letter back from her. And I've always made a point of making sure that everyone who ever writes to me gets a reply. I
0: suppose what maybe you have in common with Enid Blyton, sort of, I was thinking about um, The Famous Five and The Five Found Outers. Enid Blyton writes about talented amateurs, children who want to solve mysteries and they've got nothing but, you know, their, their wits and their enthusiasm and each other. And I guess that people... You know, obviously, you know, Roy Grace is a, is a policeman. People love him because they think they can solve the crime alongside him. It gives them that opportunity to, to get involved.
1: Especially when they get ahead of him. <laughs> Give them a little tease. I love doing that, letting them get ahead of him and then actually kind of pulling the rug sometimes.
0: It's a very satisfying thing for a reader to experience that exquisite frustration.
1: I think we're all fascinated by crime. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think that... Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons why we enjoy crime fiction, but I think certainly one of them is is the sheer solving of the puzzle. I think the other is I think we're fascinated by murder because we're all cap- you're capable of murder, I'm capable of murder. You know, we've all got the tools. We've got our bare hands. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a few knives in your house. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a bin liner for disposing of a body. Uh, you know, we all have. But the difference between say you and I and the person that Kills and gets away with it. It fascinates us, and, and I think we always wonder: is there a difference? And if so, what is that difference? What is the difference that enables somebody to to kill and, and and get away with it, and then perhaps go on killing?
0: I read somewhere. I correct me if this isn't true, but that you read, possibly in the Times, but shortly after in Fleming died, someone in the newspaper said what are we going to do for the crime novels and spy novels? You know, the, the, there aren't any, there aren't people writing them. And that set you off.
1: Yeah, it set me off. But in a, oddly enough, in, in the wrong wrong way, I, you know, I, I desperately wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I wrote my first three novels in my late teens. I wrote the Great British Novel when I was 18. Uh, the best present. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Luckily... Nobody else thought it was, (laughs) and it never got published. But my dad gave me the best birthday present ever. On my 17th birthday, he bought me a little portable electric typewriter and this battle axe of a lady teaching me to touch type. And she'd stand over my shoulders, and she'd cover all the keypads up with sticky tape. And if I looked down, she'd hit my fingers with a ruler. Don't look! And it taught me to type really fast. So I wrote these three novels, and all three of them didn't get published. It did get me an agent in New York, but that was it. I then got involved in television and film for several years, and it wasn't until I was about 28, and I met my then-to-be wife, now long ex-wife, and she said, when are you going to write this novel you've been talking about ever since we've met? And I read this article, Ian Fleming had died, and there was a shortage of spy thrillers, and I thought I could do that. So I wrote this slightly tongue-in-cheek spy thriller called Dead Letter Drop, and to my my <laughs> then agent in New York had died, I discovered, but I got a new agent in England. And to my amazement, I got a two-book deal. And it was probably the best day of my life when I got that call from him. And then the worst day of my life was the day the first book was published. So I ran around all the bookshops and it wasn't anywhere on sale. And I discovered they'd printed, like, 1,800 copies and 1,500 had gone to libraries. So, like, 300 hardbacks sold throughout the whole UK. And, and the book didn't sell, and the second one sold equally badly. And I was really despondent, and I was at a party, and I poured my heart out to another writer called Lizzie Buchan. She was working at that time at Penguin, writing jacket blurbs. She's gone on to become a very successful novelist herself.
0: I thought I remembered, I knew that name for summer, Elizabeth Buchan, is that her?
1: Yeah, and she was a friend of my sister-in-law at that time. And she said to me, darling, why are you writing spy thrillers? She said, what on earth? Can you ever know about the world of spies? You know, people who read are intelligent, and, and they don't just want a story. They want to learn something about the world, about life, whatever. You're up against people like John McCarry who have come out of the security services. What can you tell the world about espionage? Nothing. She said, find something that you're passionate about. And literally, a week later, we got burgled, and a young detective came to take fingerprints, and he saw my first book, and he said, oh, if you want research help with the police, give me a call. And he was married to a detective, and my then-wife was, was a lawyer, and we became friends, and, and they invited us to a barbie at their house. Twelve of their friends, all police officers, at response, traffic, homicide, soccer. And I just thought, wow, nobody, from a righteous perspective, there was nobody sees more of human life in a 30-year career than a police officer. Oh and that was the start of it.
0: I did want to go back, this is uh, an unconnected question, but another thing I read about you, and I'd love to ask you about because I don't know if it's true or not, but I really, really hope it is. Am I right in thinking that you worked for Orson Welles in a domestic capacity?
1: (laughs) You are right. I was at film school back in 1969, 70, and I was living in a I can politely describe it as a converted garage off the Fulham Road. Uh, my dad gave me enough money to pay my share of the rent in food and my, um, my train fare to, to get to college. And I met this very posh girl I wanted to invite out to dinner. And so I had to earn some money. I wanted to take her to a smart restaurant. And I saw, I was just walking down Fulham Road and I saw an advert. A news agent said cleaner wanted to apply Mrs. Wells, 10 shillings an hour which is about, probably about 10 quid an hour in today's money. So I rushed round there, straight there, and, and knocked on the door, and this very elegant lady. It wasn't a grand house, it was a nice London townhouse. And she sort of said, I, I was really expecting a female, to be honest. I said, I can clean honestly. And she said, all right, I'll, I'll pay you for three hours this morning. Can you clean the kitchen? So I said, fine. So I go in the kitchen, and, and not wanting to sound in any way grand, I had virtually never been in the kitchen at my parents' house in my life. We had a, a full-time cook, because both my parents worked in a family business together. Uh, you know, that was back in those days when, when people did. And I was like flummoxed. And so I, anyway, I had opened the cupboard doors, and I found this packet of flash. And I remember that flash used to be advertised on television all the time. All around the house, spring clean with flash. So I read the instruction, put flash into a basin, and I cleaned the kitchen with it. And she came in like, three hours later and she was impressed. And she said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll take you on for a month's trial, but, um, three mornings a week, three hours. I thought, wait, can we start tomorrow? I said, sure. So next day, at this house, I'm on my hands and she wanted me to do the skirting board in the hallway. So I'm on my knees with my trusty flash, cleaning the skirting <laughs> board. And suddenly there's a and all this post comes through the letterbox. And I scoop it all up and it's all addressed to wells. And I'm not always the sharpest tack in the box. I don't connect this to Mrs. Wells. I think idiot postman, he's put this through the little <laughs> box. And I'm about to tell her when the front door opens and in he walked in his long coat and his big hat, like a, and he looked down at me like I was something the cat had dropped. And I'm going like, I'm at Phil's, I, I want to be, I want to get in the film, maybe, and he like stepped over, he said, good morning. Stepped over me and walked up the (laughs) stairs, boom. Uh, So anyway, I I was back two days later and I was so excited. I I knew what I was going to say to him, had it nailed. I arrived, he's not there. I'd even kind of written my kind of resume out and and I I, I was going to say to him, can I please, uh, I'll work for you for free. Can I just uh, do anything menial you need me to do? Uh, And his wife said, oh, he's gone off to America to make a movie and won't be back for five months and i lasted at the end of four weeks she very sweetly said to me she said you know i just don't think you're really cut out for this
0: did you take the girl to dinner
1: i did take the girl to dinner but that that kind of it was sort of okay but it didn't didn't really go anywhere
0: but you got to meet the great man so give or take a week
1: and it taught me something which is never ever pass up an opportunity. Yeah, if that, if that had happened again now, I would just jump off my feet and say, "Sir, please help me." <laughs>
0: <laughs> because I assumed it must be uh, you know a, an odd film school connection, but the coincidence is you know quite magnificent.
1: I know it was just just bizarre, and it was, it was a kind of treat just to be inside that house actually, and you know, cleaning his study and seeing his kind of posters and and stuff. And it was the normality of it. it, was, it wasn't. You know, I think it's, it was a nice house. She was a very nice lady, but there wasn't a great sort of theater feel about it. And I, I like that. To
0: get back to books, I'll find a link somehow. Around that time, were there books that you were especially excited to see on screen or anything you saw on screen and read the book and you were kind of disappointed by the difference?
1: It's a great question. I think um, the, the book that really made me want to be a crime writer was the book I read when I was 14, which is Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. Mm -hmm. And I remember putting that book down and kind of promising myself, one day I'd try and write a crime novel set in Brighton that was 10% as good as Brighton Rock. Uh, But then I kind of felt, you know, there's so many great crime writers out there, you know, that market must be too crowded, which is why I started off in in spy thrillers. But the film adaptation, the first movie of Brighton Rock with with Dickie Attenborough playing Pinky. I think it's still one of the most chilling portrayals of evil I've ever seen. It's, it's just an absolutely wonderful film. And then the other book I fell in love with around that time was um, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Mm-hmm. And I just came out of film school in, in, in 1970 and I, and I went out, I couldn't get a job in England, and I, and I went to Canada and I got a job working for an educational television I, for a show called Polka Dot Door. This was for preschool children. I remember I was living in a bedsit in Toronto. I was, I was 22. I'd just arrived there. And I'd and I and I'd finished Slaughterhouse-Five. And I thought, I want to make this into a movie. Checked directory inquiries, and I found Kurt Vonnegut's pet number in, in the book, in, in Martha's Vineyard. So I just dialed it. And he answered. And, and he was, like, such a hero of mine. I'd read everything that he'd, he'd written. And I said, oh, Miss Vonnegut, my name's Peter James. I've just come out of film school and going to start a film company, and I would so much love to make, make a movie of your book, slaughterhouse five And he was so nice. He said, oh, gee, Peter, he said, Look, I, I very recently sold the rights, but I tell you what, I, I'm going to take your number, and if nothing happens, I'm going to call you, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll meet up and see if we can work it out. Unfortunately, it was then made, and oh, not very well. I'm
0: so delighted to hear that. That's a, a very graceful way that he responded. And I can't believe he was just in the phone book. And get that's, again, such a lesson. It's always worth looking. You never know who's going to be in that thing. Perhaps less so now, but
1: certainly then. Yeah, certainly back then. But he was so charming. And it's like, you know, there is all this thing and never meet your heroes. But I, th- I find that's not, not the case. You know, the, most of the people I've kind of worshipped or somewhere else have turned out to be pretty good.
0: Anne Patchett said something which I think I agree with and I think it's really interesting about that she says, she thinks, you can never really be a famous author, you can only be famous for an author and the example she gave was like, if you think you saw, say, Margaret Atwood um, walking down the street, you wouldn't necessarily run after her, or maybe after Orson Welles you would but, you know, you just think, oh, gosh, that lady looks just like Margaret Atwood and sort of leave her be and maybe... There is something about authors because they're not as kind of front-facing. I mean, I'm a novelist and I spend lots of time, you know, on my own, you know, thinking. I just want to get out and talk to people and see daylight. And I don't know if you're the same when you're writing, but
1: totally agree. I think you know, writing is is very insular. I remember. I mean, I, first thing about about the Atwood comedy, It's absolutely true. I'm mean, you, know, you know with the Grace television series if I go for, for a meal with John Sim, John is mobbed. Mm. You know, maybe one or two people will look at me and go, oh, I think I recognise that face. And, and again, we had Shane Ritchie playing Grace in the stage play a, a few years ago. And Laura and I, my, my wife and I, and, and Shane going out for drink, Shane would just be mobbed. And I'm really grateful in a way that that doesn't happen, that we can just slip up. But writing is learning. I mean, I remember the first, I, I've had. I had sort of, two periods of writing full-time. My first was in the 90s, and we did the kind of dream of buying the big remote country house. It was a wreck. And my wife was going off to work every day as a lawyer, and I remember um, I'd be sitting in my office, writing all morning, not talking to anybody. This was before I started getting out with the police regularly. And the day it really got to me was... (laughs) One lunchtime, I carried the Hoover across the fields to our local village of Hassocks in order to have somebody to talk to, the repairman. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I need to get a life.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering about the, um, you know, if, if anything had happened that, that was inspiring and the, um, the Hoover themed um, novels that it could have been. Maybe
1: it could be a whole sub genre, you know. <laughs>
0: That my, and yeah, one day, if I'll, I'll, you know, keep reading all your books. And when I see, you know, the, it'll be like you waiting for Enid Blytham to write about someone using the link. I'll be like, you took my suggestion on board. Hooray. Body
1: parts in the Hoover bag.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, I'm sure Dyson will come up with some technology that just kind of incinerates them beyond
1: labelling. Having spat out the DNA first. <laughs>
0: We'll be back with Peter soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen O Caledonia by Elspeth Barker. This is a novel I've just discovered, and I feel as though it's been part of my life forever. It's the tragicomic story of Janet. Dreamy, awkward, impossible for her parents, but easy for her readers to love. I keep saying it's like Happy to the Castle meets We Have Always Lived in the Castle. If you love Jeanette Winterson, if you lost your heart to Lolly Willows, you'll love this. O Caledonia is published by WNN and out now. Now, back to Peter. I'm sure you're asked a lot about the challenges that technology brings. um, And I'd love to hear about kind of any predictions that you have. And other than you, who do you think are the contemporary writers who are doing a a great job of really exploring and exploiting the way society is changing and writing about that?
1: That's a really good point. I think John Marr is a really interesting writer. I
0: don't know him well
1: yeah he he wrote a really good book about three years ago about electronic cars being kind of taken over and and, and you know people being killed in them by you know, external forces you know he's quite prescient in terms of technology um but i think a lot of the modern generation of crime writers and M.W. craven i think is is another one who's who's kind of on the button uh he wrote a book called the botanists and there's some, some quite a, some really good modern forensics in that. I think that crime is always evolving. Yeah, I mean, that incident you're referring to was 15 years ago, and I was at what they call morning prayers. It's a daily manic <laughs> at, at Brighton police station at 9 o'clock every day. They have it at police stations around the nation. And they, all the kind of key inspectors used to sit around a table. Now it's mostly done by teams. And they'll review everything that's happened in the city in the last 24 hours. And, and the command then-commander of Brighton Hove, Kevin Moore, turned to me and said, you've come on a historic day. This is the first day since records began. There's not been an overnight domestic burglary in Brighton and Hove." And I said, you've won the war on crime. And he just laughed. <laughs> Today's criminals don't need to be up all hours of the night, out in the pouring rain, shinning up drain pipes, trying to nick Georgian silver, um, they can make much more money out of drug dealing or internet crime. And he said electronic crime is, is the future of crime. And he that he is so right. I mean, if you look now at the, at the current crime waves, and there are still some horrible old-fashioned crimes like people being mugged and fingers cut off for rings and, uh, and Rolex watches and, and the like of that. And you know, what got me into writing Stop and Deb was reading about a woman mug for her dog, a 5,000 pound dog. And But in general, I think the shape of crime is more and more on the computers. You know, people are being defrauded out of their savings by phony bank details being presented. I wrote about the world of internet romance fraud. I and mean, you can go to school you can go to one of 11 schools in in the capital of ghana and learn to be an internet scammer they will 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 teach you not just the technology they'll teach you the culture they'll send you to to england teach you about football and all the kind of cultural tropes of england or germany or any other country where you're going to target so that you could chat to a, to a guy very convincingly um, about blokish stuff. They're very, very clever and very ruthless, and they have no moral compunction. I remember a Ghanaian saying, well, the West have screwed Africa for 450 years. It's our turn now, so what's your problem? But it's heartbreaking. I remember seeing a video that there's a private detective called Jack Roberts uh, has an agency, and he specializes in trying to help people who've been scammed recover something, and... I remember seeing this awful footage that he'd seized somehow. And it was an 88-year-old American guy who'd been conned out into like everything, like $450,000, on the phone to the scammer that, that had done it. And it was a guy pretending to be a woman in Ghana. And the guy was dancing around like this. And the, the guy, the elderly guy saying, gee, you know, you, you, you got every penny, you got all my fun money, you got... Yeah, four hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars. Could you even just let me have five thousand dollars back? And uh, that is every day of the week. Something like that is happening.
0: It's just extraordinary. What you hear now as well about you know sort of deep fakes and voice because I think that's it's voices, isn't it? That that's such a a fundamental human that that's what we respond to and that's what we trust. Which I guess brings us back to stop them dead and. You know, I think that's such an emotive issue to write about animals. Uh, And I know you are a a huge animal lover. And um, I believe, again, this is things things I've looked up on the Internet, about that you have um, menu, including an alpaca, I believe.
1: We we used to have five alpacas. Um, Unfortunately, we live in Jersey now. When we moved here, we couldn't. They're a banned animal because of carrying a TB risk and there's no constant vaccine. Yeah, we had alpacas and emus. Uh, we, we have over 100 animals now here. We've got uh, pygmy goats, oh. two dogs, two Burmese cats. Uh, we've got about 60 different breeds of hens, uh, Indian runner ducks, rescue. We've got four rescue rabbits, two rescue guinea pigs, uh, about about 50 budges and finches. Um, I just love I love having animals. I, I, and I do want to just say one thing about Stop and Dead is that i I know a few people have been concerned saying, Oh we couldn't read a dog a book about it showing any anything any hurt to dogs i I am a massive dog lover I couldn't write any scene depicting a dog being hurt, so I can assure anyone listening no there's no scene that I've written that would disturb any any dog lover you know, I've written about. Nasty people, but no, I've not written anything nasty about anything happening to a dog.
0: I think that's definitely worth you know reiterating and putting up top. I might put it in the intro because I've you know I'm the same, and I have lots of friends where you sort of. I think there might even be a website about that, the sort of you know films and books, and if you love dogs, and it's just that you might want to avoid this. Um, but I, I've just read the new Julie Cooper book, Tackle with an exclamation mark, and. I've always loved her because her books are just full of animals and in massively unexpected but typical Jilly style, it's all about um, a football team and there's um, dogs come on and do um, football demonstrations before every match to kind of, you know, cheer the crowd and you know, to delight any children watching, which... I don't think it would ever really happen in the Premier League, but I was very happy to suspend my disbelief. Uh, are there any books featuring animals that you are especially fond of? Gosh,
1: I, yeah, I used to love Talk of the Otter years ago when I was a kid. Black Beauty was another one. I know it's a kind of classic, and it's more of a sort of girly book than a blokey book, but I always loved that book. The Wind in the Willows, <laughs> uh, you know, that's always touched me. Um, I, I,
0: I think the Wind in the Willows; those characters just. Yeah. never ever age really, do they? and I think that what they're you know it's about the most human emotions and human experiences of you know frailty and anxiety and pomposity and maintaining a friendship through all of that um, I think
1: to me one of the things I love about animals is that they live much you know they really live in the moment and you know they mm. I, you wake up in the morning and there's some terrible news. Something happening in Ukraine, or the Manchester bombing a few years ago, and you wait. I, I go down and I hand feed the the goats popcorn and cheese crackers, and, and they they're just sort of almost grinning, and they don't know all the shit that's going on in the world. And it's very grounding. Um, I, I I really love that, um, and I mean it was it was fascinating writing *Stop and dead, and. and uh, really learning about a completely new area of crime. Laura and I have always sort of joked, and and I've tended to have people who don't like dogs as villains in my books. (laughs) (laughs) Always in the past, so it was a great opportunity here.
0: Was there anything that really surprised you when you were writing this that, I don't know, you probably don't want to give away, anything that could be construed as a spoiler?
1: No, there there were a few things that really surprised me. And the first, I guess, big surprise was... I read a newspaper article about this woman who would be mugged for her dog in, in a Brighton park, and I had a meeting with the, the chief constable Jay Shiner, who is a massive dog lover. And she st- astonished me. She said, "You know, organi- lockdown has pushed up the price of dogs insanely. The organised crime gangs in England are now making more money out of dogs than drugs. And, you know, they get caught with drugs; it's a five to fifteen-year sentence. But mm-hmm. dogs, the Probably won't even get a custodial sentence at all. And she introduced me to the head of their they have got a good, really good, effective rural crime division, a, a sergeant called Tom Carter running it. And he was telling me more about how the gangs operate. And then I had a meeting with the RSPCA and one of their senior inspectors, Kirsty Withall, I'm a patron of the RSPCA in the Brighton area. And she told me a really astonishing fact, which was that there's a particular kind of Blue French Bulldog, shade of colour that all the a-list celebs crave, and if you have a breeding bitch in that right shade of colour, hundred thousand pounds, and the oh my goodness, the puppies twenty-five thousand each. So it's, it doesn't. It's not hard to see why it's become such a massive crime area. But then I think the thing that really shocked me most of all was the realization, the discovery that. England has been, as we know, has been free of rabies since 1920. Uh, there's only been one instance in the British Isles since then, which was somebody in Scotland who'd been Britain abroad and, and died of rabies. Mm. There's a real... RSPCA are really scared that the amount of dogs today... Because the crime's carried on long after lockdown and the value of dogs is still high. People are smuggling loads and loads of dogs daily in from Romania, which has the highest incidence of rabies... And without any spoiler, I have a a seven-year-old girl who gets bitten by a a rabid puppy in in the story. I tried to find out more about rabies, but doctors here in England and the UK don't know about it because we haven't had it for 100 years. But what I did learn initially was that rabies is 100% fatal, Uh, unless you have been vaccinated in advance or you're vaccinated within two days of being bitten by a rabid animal. you don't know it's rabid necessarily. Mm. And then I discovered this doctor in Wisconsin, a guy called Rodney Willoughby, who's actually in the book as himself, who was the first person ever, ever known to save the life of a rabies victim. And it was a 14-year-old girl called... It's all documented on the internet, called Joanna Giese, who in 2004 was bitten by a bat she was trying to rescue from her church. And in gratitude, she got rabies as a result. Anyhow, I got in touch with him and he very kindly agreed to do a Zoom with me. I had an hour of conversation with me. And he told me about the disease. And I have to say that you had to describe the personification of evil. It's not anything supernatural, but the rabies virus. And, and very, very quickly, the way it works is if you're bitten, like she was, let's say she was bitten on the arm. You have no symptoms at all. And it slowly moves by stealth the virus moves myself up the body, you might get the odd tingling sensation, that's all. And it makes for your brain. Once it's got to your brain, it can take a few days up to a few weeks, it populates your brain. And then the first thing it does is torture you by shutting down your ability to swallow and giving you a raging thirst. Then over the next few days, it slowly starts attacking all your other internal organs, shutting them down. And in the last 24 to 48 hours before it kills you, it makes you absolutely desperate to bite another human being and pass it on. And I've seen footage of of horrific in, in hospitals in Colombia and Pakistan with rabies victims literally held down by leather restraints, frothing at the mouth, trying to bite anyone in, in near them. It's the most horrific imaginable death. And, and I, I hope if there's one sort of takeaway from, from the book, people will get the message of being very, very careful about buying any dog they don't know the provenance of.
0: As you say, it's, you know, at the moment, I think, you know, demand really has spiralled. And I think, you know, I've got friends who've rescued dogs from Romania. And obviously, I'm sure that, you know, there are lots of very, I know there are charities that, you know, bring dogs over, where bull dogs are sort of, you know, checked and vaccinated and safe. And it's great to
1: rescue them and, and bring them over through the proper channels. <laughs> but what, when people are smuggling over over in, in, in the back of, back of lorries that you know, mm-hmm. hidden by hay bales with fake vaccination certificates. And what they do is they're very clever. They'll rent an Airbnb house and you'll and they'll advertise on all the popular sites like Gumtree and mm-hmm. you see a nice, oh, yeah, Labrador puppy. Uh, and you, you turn up at this house, you think this is a nice house, You've got all the families sitting there, um, it must be okay, and, and, and you buy the dog and you get it home, and a week later it's turns out it's got part of a virus or something else and you phone them up, they're gone. Then- that, that's done a lot. Um, yeah, they, they, you, you know, the, one, one trick to look out for is if, if, you, if you go to a, a, a breeder's so-called supposed house is just look around, see if there are family photos everywhere.
0: I'd love to know whether, because you... Write about some, you know, lots of very dark, complex things. And as we've said, it's, I think, very human for us to want to know more about that. Are there any crime books or other books that you've read that have, that you've found too dark?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, I like, I mean, I, I've always quite enjoyed Stuart McBride. He writes very dark, um, you yeah, pretty gruesome, but there's a lot of humour there, so that makes it <laughs> acceptable. I think the crime novel that, both has been a massive influence on me and also probably scared me more than any other, was Silence of the Lambs. Um And it is one of the best movie adaptations of a novel ever, but the book itself was much scarier because I don't know if you remember the book.
0: That It's been a long time.
1: The senator's daughter is kidnapped and and she's put down the bottom of this kind of, like, shaft well in the killer Buffalo Bill's house and she suddenly realizes who has kidnapped her this is the guy that that skins people and and wears their skins and she's going to be the victim and I was reading that at night and I had to stop reading it and actually pick up something else just to sort of go to sleep because it it, it's it was so got into the terror the real terror Mm -hmm. in this girl's mind that was probably the strongest ever and I think you know what I, I you know I um, I do write about scary subjects, but I try to make the movies powerful. I don't believe in you know I I started my kind of film career at one point making horror movies, and, and I don't want to write horror books these days. I want, I want to write a novel that examines the kind of human condition and which does portray the crimes of our modern world, but without making anybody want to throw up or be too scared to read the book. I did, I remember when Dead Simple, my first ever Grace <coughs> book was published and I was on tour in New Zealand and I was in a bookstore in Hamilton in, in the middle of the North Island and the story is about a stag night prank that goes wrong and the groom-to-be Michael Harrison is put in a coffin in a remote woods by his mates who are going to come back and dig him up in two hours' time. It's a prank to pay him back for all the pranks he's done to them and uh, and they drive off and they all get wiped out in a car wreck. And I, I remember the bookshop owner emailing me about a week after I'd done the signing, she said, one of our customers bought your book. And she came in two days later and says, she can't finish a book unless I tell her if he gets out of the coffin or not. <laughs> 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 I thought, I've done my job.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I think that even those very dark books, I think sometimes we seek them out wanting to know that justice will be done and order will be restored and that you know we're sort of we're vulnerable to all of these things but there's also you know a human strength in wanting to kind of to solve things and right wrongs
1: very much so i think and i think part of you know there are many reasons why people love reading crime one of them is that in this sort of always uncertain world i don't think it's necessarily any darker than it than it's ever been but i think you know Reading a crime novel, you can confront through vicariously, through the eyes of the detective and the other characters. You can confront evil, but at the end of the story, hopefully Roy Grace or whatever other detective has...
0: There are no other detectives, it's only Roy.
1: (laughs) Roy Grace has sorted out, he's put everything back into order, and suddenly the world seems a slightly better and safer place. I'd love
0: to hear about whether there are any books on your pile that you're excited about, or if you've got any reading plans or books coming up or anything you're reading at the moment that you're enjoying
1: yeah i'm just actually reading a just uh book that was sent to me she's um called natalie timbali she wrote a book called the nail studio um but then this is the called the it's about an agent about a theatrical agent it's wonderful really enjoying it and then i read a an amazing non-fiction book recently Called "Humankind: A Hopeful History" by Rooka Bregman. Oh, that's a great title! It's a brilliant book. Um, you know, he takes a sort of the, the thesis that we all think that civilization is a very thin, thin veneer, uh, but he says um, it's not. And that Human beings are fundamentally good. You know, there are evil people, but most people, find people otherwise, we wouldn't have got this far. Uh, and it's one. It's a fascinating read. One of the thing, quote very quickly. One of the things he quotes in the book is fascinating stat that in battles throughout the 20th century only about 20% of soldiers ever fired their guns because they actually didn't want to kill people
0: That's astonishing!
1: Uh, and, and also he, he he found a real life Lord of the Flies and he said that Golding was a depressive alcoholic who didn't like people and he found a, a, a kind of a carbon copy of. it happened in Fiji about 50 years ago, a bunch of middle class teenage kids stole a fishing boat for a prank and, and the broke down and they drifted and they spent a year and a half on a rocky atoll. And when they were rescued, they are in really good condition, they'd organise themselves brilliantly. If two of them fought, they'd be separated for four hours, they'd have to come back shake hands. It, it, the book is, is it, its fascinating for giving a different perspective. And I'm always loving reading about different perspectives.
0: Oh, I'd love to read that. And I really hope these kids in Fiji, I hope one of them's writing a memoir or, you know, someone's writing the novelization of that because... That sounds fabulous.
1: Yeah, really good.
0: There's an E. Nesbit book I love called The Lark. And the premise is that um, there are these two, they're girls at boarding school, they're cousins, they're best friends. I think they're about 17 or 18, or sort of old enough to kind of live independently. But there's, you know, lots of family money until there isn't. And I think there's a, a dodgy accountant who's squandered the grandmother's money. And they're said, or they're told we can't keep you in school anymore. No one will pay the fees. There's, a, We've leased you a cottage. Here's 500 quid. Good luck. Live on that. And at the very beginning, they sort of have a talk with each other and they say, we have got to, if we're going to make a go of this, we have got to be kind to each other. And there's, um, I'll paraphrase it horribly, but they talk about how in couples and romantically, when people start kind of cheesing each other there's a fine line between being fun and being cruel and they say ultimately our friendship has really got to be based on a mutual respect and a mutual kindness because we can see this as an awful awful misfortune in the end of life as we know it we can see this as an adventure But we've got to have really good spirits and a shared civility if we're going to make it work
1: how interesting yeah it's just- kind of parallel mm. i must read it.
0: oh i mean she sort of you know brings us back to enid Blyton, i guess and um groups of children i mean i it's easy to say this you know at the um in my late 30s in 2023 but i think he yes, has the um the better writer i mean the samoyed books are, are lovely
1: okay i'm gonna check one out
0: oh i hope so uh, well, Peter, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I am so excited to spread the word about Stop Them Dead. And I, you know, most of all that dog lovers will be delighted by it, I think. and, and yeah, But I, also, I think as well as it you know, being a very engaging and compelling read, that it's something that we all need to know a lot more about. And I hope it does get talked about and there are you know lots of things we need to be aware of especially as animal lovers
1: yeah absolutely yeah and it's not you know I, I haven't written it as a polemic but i, I really hope mm. that people will take something away from it in addition to having had a, a fun read
0: i guess it comes back to you know what you were saying about you know writing about what you care about and i think that's you know always the best way to go
1: totally no i, I really enjoyed writing it huge thanks to
0: peter Stop Them Dead is published by Pam McMillan and out now. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. To see all the books Peter mentioned, go to acast.com booked and you can shop a selection of those books on our page at bookshop.org. Find us and follow us on social media at whitebooked. and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener find their new favourite book. Finally, I leave you with this from Terry Pratchett. Stories of imagination tend to upset those without one. See you next time.